Hi, my name's Anurag. I'm going to be talking to you on the deep dive about Amazon Aurora. You know, this is kind of an intimidating room from this direction, I've got to tell you. And I feel like I should be singing, but uh, don't worry, you're not going to see that. <laughs> Good for both of us. Uh, so what I'll be talking about here is um, basically just the fundamentals of what is an Aurora and you know some of the recent improvements and some of the stuff that's coming soon, um, at least if few of those items were talked about in the keynote earlier today. Uh, so let's just jump into it. Um, and I'll try to leave ample time for questions. I tend to go fast through these things. So Aurora is really a relational database reimagined for the cloud. And our goal here was to say that, hey, if we were really designing the relational database today as opposed to 40 years ago, what would we do? And how would we build it? And the answer ends up becoming somewhat different. And we really want to build something that has the speed and availability of a high-end commercial database, the simplicity and the cost-effectiveness of open source. No one actually wants a net new database, so we want to make ours compatible with MySQL and Postgres, the two more, most popular open source relational databases that are out there. And you know, we want to provide all of the things you expect from a, uh, a database from AWS, you know, pay-as-you-go pricing, managed service, et cetera, et cetera. So, Relational databases were, you know, came about a long time ago in the mainframe era, and uh, you know you basically end up with this blob, big blue box that's you know SQL transactions, caching, logging, and no matter what, if you look at most systems today, they continue to do that. And the difficulty that that uh, creates is is that it has a large failure blast radius, right? It tends to be a scale-up architecture. Um, you know, you do, there are systems that scale out, but uh, not a ton of them. And even with those, the failure blast radius is uh, you know, quite real. And so one of the things that we do in Aurora is, is that we move storage, which is really what you care about from, you know, state is what you care about from a blast radius perspective. We move that out into a uh, purpose-built log structure distributed storage system. And the storage volume may be striped across hundreds of storage nodes. They're distributed across three availability zones. There are six copies of data, two copies in each um, AZ. And if any of these instances fail, we can certainly uh, go and re replace them quickly. They're stateless, so it doesn't much matter. The caching has been moved out of process, so if you have to do a restart of your database, let's say, because someone's running a query and it's, this thing is hung, the cache will still be hot when it comes up, and so that also helps. So, um, you know, that's a slide I've used many times over the last three years. Um, here's a new one. So, why are six copies necessary? So, in the first, uh, in the top picture, we're showing an example with a two out of three quorum, re you know, two out of three reads, two out of three writes, and uh, you know, basically, your quorum is fine as long as you only have. Um, you know, one failure at a time. And failures are reasonably rare. Let's say there's a one in um, 10,000 or one in 100,000 chance of a failure. To have two failures, if they're independent events, you multiply those numbers and it feels pr pretty rare. But the problem is, in a large fleet, if you know, there are always some failures that are going on, right? Disks fails, nodes fails, network paths fail. You know, in a large enough fleet, there's always something that's broken and you know, that needs to get repaired. Now, the problem is, is that AZ failures, availability zone failures, have shared fate. If you lose an AZ, you will have a quorum break on each and every quorum. And so the ones where you've got a red break up there, that breaks the quorum. And if that's a, you know, a long-term destructive failure, you're lost. So we believe in Aurora that you need to tolerate AZ plus one. So, you can have one failure in the system at any given time, and <clears throat> if you lose an AZ, or you know, you will end up basically being able to tolerate it from a read perspective. So in Aurora, we have four out of six quorum for writes, three out of six for reads. Uh, the quorum will survive an AZ failure. We've actually built a bunch of code to be able to uh, tolerate even long-lasting failures. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was a snowstorm in uh, um, Washington, D.C., and you know, there were some concerns about the flat roof that happened to be on one of our uh, data centers and whether it was going to survive that blizzard. And um, you know, it did. Everything was fine, but you know, just 
if you lose a building in a long-term kind of way, which can happen, right? I mean, we all pay insurance for fire and you know, so forth. You know, that's because these events are possible, right? They're not impossible. Then you know, that's a long-term failure. So in those cases, we drop down from four out of six to three out of four of the remaining nodes. Um, and so if you have three AZs, that requires uh, six copies. If you have five AZs, which not that many people do, um, then you can uh, you know, drop down to three out of five and still have AZ plus one, if that makes sense. So why is that one failure okay? So if that really turns into a question of how long does it take to repair? And we use 10 gigabyte segments. There's a 10 uh, gigabit uh, uh, network. And so you, know, you can do the math on how long that repair takes you know, from detection to um, repair. And so that really reduces your window of vulnerability, right? Because you're now talking about a handful of seconds in which time, in order for, to actually lose data, you need two of those to happen simultaneously, uh, plus an AZ failure to you know, lose four out of six and not, no longer have three out of six for repair. Or you need you know, four independent events, and that's an awfully bad day, right? Now, the nice thing about doing things uh, with where you have um, a high fault tolerance threshold is, is that you can use it not just for these catastrophic events, not just for you know, the ongoing uh, uh, problems that occur in the large and the fleet, but you can also use this as a mechanism to just repair your system itself. Like, so for example, uh, it's a, generally in most uh, storage systems, it's a pretty big deal to patch it because you're injecting a failure. In Aurora, it's not. As long as I uh, make sure that I've got uh, you know, six colors for the various uh, segments of something, then I can basically patch any one color at a time and you know, as long as, and the system's fine, right? Because I've injected a failure for a subset of the system, but that's fine. I can also use it to uh, deal with heat management. So if I've got a hot node or a hot disk, I can just kill one of the segments on it and it'll automatically get uh, repopulated on some other uh, disk on some other node. Um, you know, that's just how our repairs work. And that's cool, right? Because it just it takes what would normally be a complex, hard, challenging problem, and it makes it uh, straightforward. One of the things I often talk about uh, within my team is, is that um, latency is just a short-term version of availability, and availability is just a short-term version of durability, right? And if you have a system that properly deals with uh, the performance and jitter and so forth using quorums. It also, the same exact model can be used for uh, doing uh, availability, the same exact model can be used for doing durability. So, you know, just for, for you know, any distributed systems geeks in the audience, you know, I think that I'd encourage you to think about that statement and how you might apply it in your own, the systems you build. Um, Another interesting thing that we, I think that's novel with Aurora, I'm not sure, um, is that we, you can do membership changes without stalls. One of the problems that would occur when I start doing all of these small segments, and I'm talking about failures happening, you know, you know, failures become more common. So I can't really manage changes to the membership in my quorum easily, right? In most systems, you're doing some things like a Paxos protocol to deal with a membership change. We don't, we use quorum sets. And so let's just walk through a failure of node F inside my quorum set, that's A, B, C, D, E, F. And so what happens there is, is that I go from all nodes healthy to a, a quorum change, which is basically, hey, you can't write to this thing unless you're writing to the right quorum. And then if you're on the old version, you, know, you basically have to write to every member of it and say, update the epoch. So you update the epoch, and then they're not going to accept a write unless somebody's got the right uh, notion of the uh, quorum set. Um, so what we're doing here is, is that we're saying, okay, I want to go from A, B, C, D, E, F to A, B, C, D, E, G. And uh, so I'm going to basically say that you need to write to a quorum set, which is A, B, C, D, E, F and A, B, C, D, E, G. Now note that in this particular case, writing to A, B, C, D, which is a quorum four out of six actually satisfies that, right? And from that point, I can move forward and say, do a second uh, epoch change and go to A, B, C, D, E, G, right? And remove A, B, C, D, E, F from my quorum set. And that works fine. 
the neat thing about this is, is that you don't have these funny uh, edge conditions the way you do in these other membership change protocols where you can't tolerate multiple changes, you can't tolerate writes and all of this. And during this entire process, I can continue to you know, accept writes, accept reads, and uh, accept additional failures, right? Like if after, uh, while I'm in that second state, if E went down, I can just go and add H, and then I have just a more complex quorum set, right? And this is just Boolean math, right? And so, you know, math is math, math works. And what's cool about this is, is that if you don't have a penalty for membership changes, then you can be aggressive about projecting a failure, right? So I can say like, hey, node F seems to be off. I'm gonna claim it's down and start to bring G in. I can just as easily go back to F if that was just jitter in the network or go over to G, and that's fine, right? Both of those are perfectly legitimate cases to go to, and the, quorum it's, uh, the segment itself is small, so getting G in place is also an inexpensive operation. So, you know, that's um, a little bit of the new uh, content that I haven't talked about before, but uh, hopefully it's interesting. Um, one of the other reasons that people tend not to use quorums is, is that they, they're great for writing. They kind of suck for reading because uh, you have to, you know, read. If you're writing to four, you have to read from three in the quorum set of uh, in the quorum of six. So we avoid that. Why? Because we can say, like, I know who I wrote to and who um, act back to me. And as long as I know that this block is available on this node, why would I do anything other than just read from that node? So on an, you know, so the point is, is that most distributed systems abhor state, but in a, you know, database systems are all about state, and so this is transient state. So in the case of a crash recovery, I may not have it, but uh, and I may have to re-establish all of this, and we'll talk about how to do that a little bit later. But um, from the perspective of an ongoing running system, you know, this is I can cache which nodes are up to date, and even I can cache what the latency of each, you know, the writes and the reads were from that node, so I can go and understand, you know, sort of the storage weather, if you will, inside the system, because it's a multi-tenant system in the storage layer, and it doesn't have to be that I'm hot, some other, uh, you know, caller to that node may be hot on some completely different activity on that disk, and so I might just go and, you know, move to some other thing. So the read quorum is actually a repair quorum. The only time that I, actually need three out of six is during a repair or a crash recovery if I'm you know, so unfortunate as to reach all of this. So I'm gonna run through fast, and um, you know, there'll be time for questions either at the end of this talk or afterwards. I can see a lot of confused faces. Um, so um, you know, let's move away from distributed systems and just talk about you know, why do we care, right? We care because it's faster, right? And so here's some numbers on Aurora, uh, compared to MySQL 5.6, based on uh, the Sysbench benchmark using the R4.16 Excel. You know, I've shown the, a variant of the slide in the past. It, you know, it used to show 500,000 writes, 100,000, uh, sorry, 500,000 reads per second, um, and 100,000 uh, writes per second. What I mean by that is a DML operation or a select, not an IO. And uh, you know, the nice uh, news here is, is that we're, we've by going to a 16XL, we've doubled the write traffic, uh, so we can run 200,000. Uh, the read uh, is about the same on that uh, node. And that's basically a packets per second limitation. If we were running local, we'd go higher. So how do we achieve this? Um, at core, you know, we achieve it because we do less work. And you know, at the um, finally, at the end of the day, um, these systems, databases are all about I/O. Uh, networked systems, you know, where the you separated storage from compute. Um, it's all about packets per second and uh, network bandwidth and uh, so on. So, you know, it's really about reducing the IOs, minimizing the packets, processing asynchronously. Um, and so what does that turn to? So let's compare RDS MySQL to Aurora in terms of the traffic. So if you're, there are five different types of writes that go on in uh, MySQL. There's um, the redo log, there's the bin log, there's the data block. The data block actually gets written twice because it's not uh, the 
same size as a atomic write to SSD and you can deal, you can end up in torn pages otherwise. And there are these abominations called FRM files which represent the uh, 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 metadata uh, state. And so let's say I was writing a, um, so I'm gonna have, end up writing to an EBS volume, it's mirrored on the local side, then I'm gonna, let's say it's multi-AZ, so I'm gonna go and process that over to a replica instance and it's gonna write uh, step four and step five. Now the problem with this is, is that step one, three, and four are um, sequential and synchronous. That means that all of the latency is uh, you know, uh, additive, all of the jitter is additive. There are lots of different types of writes for any user operation. And you, the data blocks themselves, which are the largest portion of it, have to be write, written twice. So on the 30-minute suspense write-only workload, uh, relatively small uh, data set with the largest number of PI ops that were available at that time, we were able to run about three-quarters of a million transactions, and uh, which averaged out to about 7.4 IOs per transaction. Let's compare that to Aurora. So in Aurora, the only thing I write over the network is the redo log. And so I have to write it to more places, but uh, you know, the six copy amplification, but I'm right, the redo logs are way smaller than data blocks, right? Like 100 to one. And um, so what we have to do is we boxcar the log, redo log records together and you know, ship them off uh, using, uh, you know, to the appropriate segments in a partial order and then we uh, you know, issue the write. Uh, all of those steps are asynchronous, so we're doing asynchronous network processing. Um, interestingly, because the data pages are instantiated in the storage system, there's, we don't have this notion of checkpoints or cache replacements, and that's a really big improvement because the problem is, is that there's a positive correlation in the, you know, in the typical database between the activity that's happening in the foreground and the number of cache replacements and the amount of checkpointing that's going on. There's a negative correlation in Aurora. If you're really hitting the cache hard, you can just throw blocks away because they're getting instantiated in the storage node. So in this case, even though there's six times more log writes, there's nine times less network traffic. And you know, since it's all asynchronous, it's very tolerant and it's uh, quorumed, it's tolerant of network and storage outliers. So in this particular benchmark, we were able to run 35 more, 35 times more transactions. And we were doing, um, despite the 6x amplification, 7.7 times less uh, IOs. It's a big difference. So where did all those IOs go? So they went uh, to the storage node. So what happens in the storage node is, is that we get a log record, we persist it onto a disk, and then we up, you know, put into what we call an update queue, and we acknowledge it back. At that point, it's persistent, and we're done, as far as the head node's concerned, right? All, all the rest of the work is background. And so what we have to do after that is, is that we have to sort and group it, it's, since it was asynchronous. They might be appearing out of order. Um, I may not have received one of those rights because it's a network and networks have you know, funny issues. And so I, we run a gossip protocol amongst the peers to make sure that we fill in all the holes. We coalesce those, that's basically redo generating a new version of the data page. Um, we write out of place, so you know, you'll have the old version of the page and the new version of the page that removes the need to do things like double write buffers. Um, it does mean that we have to garbage collect in the background. And you know, every so often, you know, if we have space, we'll uh, scrub them to make sure that our CRC checks are uh, valid. And then we'll you know, do uh, backups of both the log and the uh, data blocks to S3 before we can garbage collect. So the observations here is, is that all of these steps are asynchronous. Only steps one and two are in the foreground latency path. The input cube, you know, dividing that prior number 7.7 .7, by six, because every storage node is only seeing a sixth of the writes, right? It's, the input queue is 46 times less than MySQL, right? And it's, we're favoring the latency-sensitive operations, and we're basically doing everything else in the background, which gives you this trade-off between uh, um, latency and space. So if we're running out of space, we have to favor garbage collection and you know, do uh, standard uh, you know, queue processing to sort of put back pressure on the input queue. 
but if we're not, we can let it build up. And you know, every workload has some amount of spikiness to it. And so you know, this lets us smooth it out with background processing. Um, the other big value that you get is, is that since we're doing the redo processing in the storage node, there's no crash recovery. I mean, there is crash recovery, but it's super fast because normally what you have to do in the a traditional database is, is that you know, there's this classic five minute rule where by every five minutes you have to write all blocks uh, uh, you know, that have been modified out to disk so that you minimize the amount of log processing that would be happening if you have to do a crash recovery. Now, the, one of the problems in MySQL is, is that that processing is single-threaded. And so, and of course, your uh, cache is cold. So even though it was five minutes in the foreground, that might have been happening across 100 threads and was, it was happening at, very likely across blocks that were hot in cache. Whereas here, you know, so it might take an hour, right? You know, I think we've all probably watched our databases take far longer than uh, five minutes to come up. And even five minutes is a super long time to be out if you're running an internet site. So what we do in Aurora is, is that the underlying storage is replaying redo log records all the time. If you ask for a data page, either the page is current because we've done the coalescing, or we'll make it current by basically processing the redo log records from the last version of the page plus the log, just like any log structured uh, storage system. And so we just do that all, all the time as part of a disk read. And so we can also do that after a crash recovery. And the log application is, of course, parallel distributed asynchronous, but there's no replay for startup, and that ends up becoming a big deal. So let's look at what we have to do during a crash recovery. So we, let's say on an individual volume, uh, we might have a bunch of writes that happen, a gap where something hasn't, you, we've seen a write for entry 1000, but we haven't seen the write for you know, some entry before it that was dependent upon. And so there may be some gaps and so forth. And so it's kind of what I call um, a ragged edge to the log. So there's this portion where you know everything has gotten four out of six and then there's some stuff that's in flight. The way other systems sort of deal with that is, is that they do two-phase commits. Uh, two-phase commits take a long time, they're heavyweight, it's uh, kind of sucky. So what we do instead is, is that we push, and rather than two, doing two-phase commits in foreground processing, we do the trimming of the ragged edge uh, during crash recovery. So what we have to look for here is what, what's the consistency point? So the consistency, so actually first, what is the volume complete LSN? What is the LSN uh, log sequence number, you know, redo log record uh, identifier, such that there are no gaps past that point? So you know that the volume is complete past that. So that's the point that's the ragged edge. And so you're not actually interested in that point you're interested in the last commit before that point, because anything that's not committed is gone, right? And so, so that's the consistency point LSN. So the last commit, the last commit record, you know, before the uh, volume commit LSN. And so, basically, what we do after a crash recovery is we have to bring everything up, we have to compute these two numbers, and we have to, you know, trim those off from the log, and then we construct the database. So. And that's it. You know, so it's basically some reads towards the tail of the log, opening all the volumes, uh, et cetera. So that's a summary of sort of like basic Aurora, all of the stuff I described was true three years ago when we launched it. Um, let's look at some more recent improvements. <coughs> so a few months ago, we launched fast database cloning. And uh, so, you know, an advanced. Uh, database volume uh, manager, you know, say uh, EMC or NetApp filer or what have you, um, will basically do a copy and write clone of a volume. And, what the, and so we do as well. And so what that means is you can clone the database without copying the data. And that, uh, since you don't have to copy the state in the database, the creation of the clone is nearly instantaneous, you know, certainly sub-minute. And what happens then is, is that I've created this cloned volume and as I write, either on the original uh, database or on the new database, we end up creating copies, right? And if we haven't done that, we can both read the shared data. So that saves both uh, space, and it also saves time in terms of creating the copy. And this, I think, is gonna be a really powerful feature for everyone, because 
uh, think about the, uh, the value of being able to clone a production database to run your tests, right? And so you've got some high fidelity data set, you can just run it and, you know, or maybe you wanna do a reorganization, like I wanna see whether I, if I add this index and against the actual data and run the same workload against it, it is better or worse, right? Because I've added an index, so the inserts are gonna be slower, but the queries are gonna be faster. How do I trade that off? And you know, it's much better to be able to do that against your actual data and your actual database and to be able to create that index without impacting your production database, right? And you can do things like you know, push a bin log from one database to the other to make sure that you get those updates going on. You know, sometimes you just wanna save off a point in time snapshot and without impacting something. So someone says, I think there's something weird going on here. Well, you know, let me, rather than shutting down activity, let it keep going forward, but I've got a copy of that system that I can use for forensic analysis, right? Um, let's briefly review how backup and restore uh, works in Aurora. So what we do in Aurora is, is that we backup both the redo log and uh, the data blocks. And you know, as we reach a point where a point of consistency, uh, where we can say all of the segments have, um, all of the segments that comprise the data volume have reached at least this point, we can say that, okay, the snapshot has occurred to this point of truth, right? So everything's happening in background all the time. And what we're doing is we're just advancing the point in time when we can say like, okay, this is the backup LSM, right? Very similar to the volume complete LSM I referred to earlier. So we're just continually streaming that stuff. And uh, you know, that's just part of the system. It, there's no such thing as like, okay, snapshot now, and then you suddenly get a burst of IOs happening in the system that interfere with foreground processing. And at restore, we just have to find the right stuff and pull it back down, both data blocks and redo log. And that also happens in parallel and synchronous. So, you know, that works, it works fine. It's a good deal faster than restoring a, a, a traditional database volume uh, because it's happening so parallel. Um, but, you know, normally the times when you're doing this operation are times that you're experiencing an outage, usually due to something like I dropped the wrong table or something like that, or I, you know, ran this insert statement or query, you know, delete statement without the right where clause, you know, not equal instead of equal, we've all done it. Um, so, um, you know, we've also introduced coming soon, you know, and, and generally everything that says coming soon is like inside the next three months, right? Um, uh, backtrack, uh, which is, you know, some, uh, essentially near instantaneous restores. And what we're doing here is, is we're saying, you know, we're not over destructively writing data on disk and we're garbage collecting it. If you said you wanted to keep, um, an extra, I don't know, a gigabyte of data, which represents an hour of log creation in your database volume, you know, you should be able to pay for it and then be able to restore backwards in point in time, right? And be able to do that in the volume without um, needing to write anything, without needing to read anything. So this is just a metadata operation where we're just moving pointers around. And what we're doing is we're marking regions of the database, the log pr processing, as invisible. So, you know, we still walk them forward, we just don't apply them. And um, the nice thing about this model is, is that we also don't destructively overwrite when we're doing a backtrack. So if you say, I wanna go back 15 minutes. No, the, gosh, that was wrong. Let me go back 13 minutes. Okay, wait, that was too far. How about 14 minutes? Okay, that's perfect. Right? And that's just happening in the space and you know, it's like a jog dial. And um, so that uh, works um, really pretty well. I think um, you know, it's a feature that if you're running a production database, you pretty much should just have on. And I think it's just adds a lot of value. A lot of what we're focusing on thus far in the talk is availability, you can see that. And it's just different angles to availability and definitely one of the issues that can arise is user error, right? And so you wanna be able to deal with those as well. Another thing that we added just a couple of weeks ago is uh, auto-scaling of read replicas. And so basically if you have a lot of load, you will just automatically add read replicas as you need. All the read replicas are attached to the same storage volume as the primary master. They're all available as uh, failover targets for the master. Uh, you can have up to 15 of them across your three AZs. 
typically our, our re, uh, the uh, Aurora read re uh, replicas use uh, log processing, uh, redo log processing to update their caches. You know, you don't have to update the storage volumes, right, because it's one storage volume. But you do have caches that are different in each of them. And you just want to make sure that if I get a redo record, if either it's in my cache or it's not. If it's not, I just throw it away. If it is inside my cache, then I need to update it. And you know, I, I'm focusing on data caches, but there are also lots of other caches in MySQL and any other database, metadata, et cetera. So you have to deal with all of that. Generally, we found that our replication lag in uh, Aurora tends to be in the 10 millisecond kind of range. And you know, that's just, uh, I see somebody laughing here because I'm sure he's used to my SQL bin log replication. It's just, it can be a bit longer. And you, know, you can imagine that with, you know, if you're doing 200,000 writes per second, you know, you'd be waiting a long, long time. Um, so you know, I think that that's pretty cool with a load balanced uh, reader endpoint that does uh, load balancing across these things and auto scaling. And so then you, know, you can just write and it'll automatically go to the one you need to. Um, last reInvent, I talked about online DDL, where you know if you're familiar with MySQL, it does do, you know, so to speak, online DDL. But what it's doing underneath the covers is a full data, a full table copy in the background. It rebuilds all the indices. You know, it can take a long time, and then um, you're run, basically the DML is going into a new table that basically gets. Uh, copied into uh, that needs to get reapplied after you do the switchover. And while you're doing that switchover, uh, there's a table lock, right? And so it's kind of slow. Um, <clears throat> so what we do is something very similar to redo logging, just schema logging. And so we're, uh, we introduced a new dictionary table where you know, we do something like, here's the table, table one. We're doing an operation to add column. This is the column name, and this is when we did it. And then we're done. And then we get, you know, and it's got a timestamp against it. And when we inspect a page, we have to say, like, okay, is there a metadata change that's happened to this page? And if there has been, we need to go and update it, right? And uh, it's basically a modify on write, similar to the copy on write thing I was talking about earlier with cloning. Um, last year, we added support for adding a nullable column at the end of the table. Uh, you know, in the next few uh, weeks, we'll add, add a column anywhere and with or without a default. And uh, so that, I think, should be useful to a lot of people. There are a lot of other, you know, DDL operations that we should support. You know, it's gone a little bit slower than I'd have liked, but, you know, we'll do it. And um, if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you can see that 5.7 is a ton faster than 5.6 in this regard. So if you're Using 5.6, you should really think about 5.7. But uh, you know, it's like many orders of magnitude different, right? And it just doesn't make any sense uh, you know, what, how different the approach is. Um, so one of the, you know, we've often focused, uh, in general, we focused on throughput for uh, Aurora, you know, like how many transactions per second can you push through the system? <clears throat> or how many selects can you push through the system? Sometimes we get people saying like, hey, I didn't get that 5x you promised, and we'll go and look at it, and it turns out that they're running one thread of sequential you know, select statements or one thread of consecutive insert statements, and you know, it's kind of hard to speed those things up, right? Because um, you know, there's just a basic amount of work, and we can't do any of our tricks with throughput processing, the asynchrony, and you know, batching, and all of that stuff to make stuff faster if you've only given me one unit of work to go do at a time. But that doesn't mean it's not a legitimate thing to go speed those things up. And uh, so here's a set of things that we've been doing for a single query or single uh, you know, operation performance in most of this is. So asynchronous uh, key prefetch. <clears throat> so one of the challenges we had in Aurora is, is that if you're using a standard MySQL, you're going to make an I.O. request uh, to, through the Linux kernel, and it's going to try to recognize whether those I.O.s are happening in sequence. And if those I.O.s are, it thinks are happening in sequence, it'll start to prefetch blocks in. And so that's cool uh, if your database is laid out that way. And you know, it often starts out in a benchmark laid out that way. But then you know, the way uh, B-trees work, you end up with random access patterns, and so it doesn't work uh, super well. And so 
What we're doing now is, is that we basically look at the B-tree pattern, decide uh, dynamically whether you're likely to be accessing a lot more blocks, and then pick the blocks you need to access. And you know, we're doing network calls, not I.O. calls. And we just start to load those into memory. And so this is um, the latency improvement factor versus what you know, current MySQL batched key access joins uh, using, you know, Basically, this is TPCH, you know, slight variations. You know, TPCH has got very formal rules, so this is basically the same queries and data, but uh, you know, not TPCH formally, running on R38 Excel. And uh, you, know, you can see that, um, at least on a cold data set, we're getting you know, anywhere from uh, you know, no improvement to 4x to 10x to 14x. You know. And so you know, there are cases where it matters, and, basic, and these are all uh, against cold buffers. And so if you're running against a cached workload, this obviously prefetch isn't going to help at all, right? Um, but um, if you are running a large query that has to do a scan, it's a pretty big deal. Um, speaking of batch scans, you know, after you get the IOs in, the way MySQL works, uh, error on the slide, uh, is that you do um, a bunch of you know, calls that are row at a time repeated function calls, locking, latching, cursor stores, um, format changes from uh, NODB to MySQL formats. You know, there's just a ton of work. And so we've started moving uh, to a batch format for table scans, index scans, index range scans. And you know, it's been worth about anywhere from, you know, for the queries where that matters, it's been worth somewhere between 50 to 100%. You know? So that's pretty cool as well. Um, hash joins. You know, so any reasonable database should have hash joins, so we've added those, or are coming soon. Um, again, uh, on TPCH, uh, you're seeing uh, you know, pretty significant improvements on a, the subset of queries where it makes sense to use that relative to batched key access. And um, if you're not familiar with hash joins, the basic idea is, is that you, know, you have two sides to a join, one which you know, you're First, I should say, a join is where you're saying like you know like something like a equals b, and you uh, in one table and another, uh, you know, emp dot dist, uh, you know, emp no equals you know depth dot depth no or whatever, and um, what you do in this case is that you build a hash table on the smaller side, you ship it over to the other side, and you probe the hash table to find matches. Uh, it's a pretty standard approach, and so those are basically a completion of some of the near-term improvements that are happening, you can see that we're sort of trying to advance towards dealing with larger queries and so forth and uh, so forth. So serverless. So serverless is kind of an odd thing to try to think about from a database perspective, right? Because you know, it's, you can say like, okay, I've got um, some Lambda function, I'd just like to run a request, I'm willing to eat some latency, that's fine. And you know, in that context, a request-based serverless system makes sense. But um, what about a system which actually benefits from having a warm buffer cache, and where you want to run, uh, you know, a few thousand, a few hundred thousand requests per second? Now, you might still want that to be serverless to get the advantages of scale up, scale down. You might have variable workloads. You might have cyclical workloads. You might have unpredictable workloads. You might just not want to deal with the workload, right? And so, you know, there are lots of I would say the large majority of databases, 80, 90%, are not things that have a consistent level of traffic that's always on all the time. And for those things, it maybe makes sense to uh, shut, them down, shut them down when not in use. For those things, it maybe makes sense to go and say like, oh, it's spiking usage, and I want to, rather than brown out or build a queue, I want to actually just make my database bigger or smaller, right? So that's basically what we're building here. Um, so the idea here is, is that it starts up on demand, meaning a query hits it, a SQL request hits it, it shuts down when not in use, it scales up and down automatically based on uh, you know, whether you're out of memory or CPU or whatever. Um, interestingly, no application impact when scaling. And it's pay per second, one minute minimum. And so what, we're, what you see in this picture is you know, your very familiar application, a database endpoint, basically an IP address. Underneath the covers, a request router that will have 
Um, we'll touch on that a little bit. And then scalable database capacity. So you'll have one database node, but it's going to either grow or shrink based on the warm pool of instances that we manage. And obviously, you have a database volume, you know, you know the same six copies and all the rest of it. That's there all the time, right? You don't want to, just because you want the database instance to go down doesn't mean you want your data to go away, right? Um, so, so what happens when you provision a instance. So what we do is, is that we give you a VPC endpoint, right? We give you an endpoint in each of your three VPCs and it's connected to an IP address. And we set up a network load balancer and we create a storage volume. And you know, that's basically it. We don't create the database instance until the first request arrives. So the first uh, request triggers the instance provisioning because of the warm pool that typically takes I think that slide may be wrong. It's typically around three to five seconds, which is pretty decent, right? You know, um, and then when it, it's, it'll scale up and down as your workload changes, you get, that's usually one to three seconds, and uh, the instances hibernate after a user-defined uh, period of inactivity, um, and the scaling operations are transparent. Why are they? Uh, why scaling up and down transparent? It's because inside the request layer, we maintain your session state, and so. We'll go and bring up another instance. Uh, let's say you need to scale up. And then we'll find a point when you don't have a request active right now. And then we'll transfer the sessions over to the new location. Okay? And you know, of course, the database storage is persisted until explicitly you delete it. And so what you basically specify in a serverless instance is this is the minimum size I want. This is the maximum size I want. and this is how long I want to wait before I hibernate this database, right? And so you can do something, you know, like that looks a lot like existing Aurora by saying, oh, I want an R4, you know, 2XL, minimum, maximum, never hibernate, right? That's basically uh, the server version of serverless, right? We'll spin it up and we won't shut it down. Um, or you can say, look, I want to, it to go anywhere from a T2 small all the way up to an R4 16XL, and I want to you know, sh shut it down after half an hour, right? And so that's useful. You can use that for dev test instances. You can use that in your CI-CD pipeline, right? Because someone makes a change to the application, you want to run a bunch of tests. Pretty much always that involves using a database, right? You could have cloned your database and have it run off of that. And you know, so all of those sorts of things are valid, as well as things like, I have a game, you know, the games have unpredictable workload. I don't want to deal with it. Just, uh, you know, go and have it go up and down. Uh, you know, have games that have become less popular, but then eventually become, you know, maybe, you know, through some old reference in some movie, uh, you know, become suddenly more popular. You know, so you can't predict those things. And then you also have cyclical apps, right? Like, um, I'm responsible for performance reviews as a manager, right, at Amazon. So, you know, the uh, HR team is always using our performance management application. You know, twice a year, every manager is suddenly storming onto that system, and it's freaking slow, right? And uh, during that time, it would be nice if it just could scale up and you know for those periods without anyone dealing with it, right? You know, and I'm sure you all have those sorts of applications as well. It's actually the majority use case by far. So that's what I've got on uh, serverless. Let me go a little bit fast through uh, multi-master. Um, so multi-master, so there really are, have been uh, two approaches to dealing with multi-master problems in the relational database world. The first one is shared disk. And so what you do in shared disk is you say every instance uh, of the database can access the common storage, and what you do is you fuse the caches together. So all the data, the, all, excuse me, all the data is available to all nodes, and it makes it really easy to build an app, right? Because you can just send any request anywhere, and it's basically the same kind of cache coherency protocol as you might be, you know, familiar with in running multi-socket multiprocessors on a motherboard, and you know, and what the system is doing underneath the covers, it's making sure that if somebody's writing, that nobody else has that uh, thing dirty and is writing, you know, you have to get it from memory or you have to get it shipped from the other socket. Or if somebody is reading, then they need to, if somebody else has it dirty, then they need to get, move from dirty to uh, uh, read only. And then, you know, I have to get that copy, all of that kind of traffic. 
So the cash coherence traffic is um, pretty much on a per lock basis. And so if you're running a two node cluster, half the time you know, your typical data item will be local, half the time it'll be remote, and you'll be running a lot of traffic for those. The networking can be expensive. You know, typically these systems uh, don't have a lot of nodes in them, and the nodes that tend to be close together, right, and running you know, sophisticated stuff like InfiniBand and so forth. And if you have a hot block, it's very similar to running uh, you know, high-end uh, you know, system software on the multiprocessor. You end up having a lot of cache heat and things pinging back and forth in negative scale. So that's one model. It's very popular in the broader world. Oracle Rack looks a lot like this. Um, the other model is to do a shared nothing system where you know, the application can continue to write to any one of these nodes. And the uh, database takes responsibility for sharding the data across a multitude of database, uh, data ranges, and then basically distributing the SQL statement and then converging it back. So the linkage here is in the SQL tier. So there's a lot less coherence traffic here. What, uh, it's really just for commits. So because you need to make sure that if I wrote this piece of data, you wrote that piece of data, and somebody else did the opposite, it doesn't matter. So that means that you can scale to a lot of nodes. The problem here is, is that you know, two-phase commit, Paxos commits are very heavyweight. The membership change algorithms are very heavyweight. Since it's range partitioning, you typically end up with hot partitions. You can easily end up with hot partitions because it's not just a hot block. Now I'm doing something at a partition level. So let's say I partition the obvious way by date range so that I, because my, most of my queries were by date, it's very likely that the inserts are all happening into the last partition. Right? And uh, cross-partition operations uh, become expensive. So these systems are much better at small requests. You see it very commonly in systems that I would categorize as NoSQL. Right? And uh, you know, like Cassandra looks uh, a fair bit like this, I would say. We're doing something different. Uh, it's a complicated page. Sorry about that. And so what we're, um, what we sort of say is, is that you know what? There are oases of consistency in Aurora. And so like the head node knows exactly what order each transaction in that data, you know, and its node should be. Another head node, same thing. Any given storage volume knows the partial order of writes that it you know, received and must be satisfied, right? And so if you believe that, then you know, if you can know that those two things, then the only time that you could possibly have a conflict if, is you know, given that all of these guys have observable individual state is when data has changed both at multiple database nodes and at multiple storage nodes, right? So if two guys are writing to the same storage uh, volume, it's ordered, and that's fine. If uh, you know, the same uh, guy is uh, writing to two storage volumes, well, that's just regular old Aurora. That's totally fine, right? And so since there's much, you know, we're doing conflict resolution here, it's, um, there's much less coordination that's required. And you know, the way what we do is, is that when there is coordination, it's basically hierarchically managed through a ledger. And uh, uh, like this is a case where you know, the blue guy is writing to page one, then page two, and the orange guy is writing to page two and the page one. And you know, one write succeeded on page one, and the other one succeeded on page two. And so wait a second, now I'm not able to achieve uh, something. And, so both of these, uh, the storage node is aware that it received something that it couldn't satisfy. And so it, it, you know, it can't be satisfied at an individual uh, storage node. It can't be satisfied at an individual head node. So what we have done is, is we elect a leader, you know, an Ubermaster, if you will. And it, one of its responsibilities is to manage a ledger. And all a ledger is, is you know, a fancy word for effectively a redo log by a different name, uh, a different kind of redo log. But, um, and it's responsible for saying, okay, who's uh, the victim, right? And so the idea here is to, uh, you know, and that's very similar to like um, uh, dealing with lock conflicts in the traditional lock manager and picking a victim when you had a deadlock. And so you just basically have to do that. The cool thing about this is that you can make it hierarchical. So in some sense, uh, the database and the storage node are providing the base level of uh, ordering. The Ubermaster is providing the next level of ordering, 
And you could imagine that if you were building multi-master, multi-region, then if you have regional conflicts where something is writing across multiple uh, regions, then you can just basically elect a Ubermaster you know, across regions as well, right? Let's uh, quickly look at uh, crash recovery uh, here. So crash recovery, you know, we discussed what single master looks like. Multi-master is actually more complicated. And then that's because losing one database uh, node is, uh, doesn't mean the other one's gone, right? So in this case, you've got, again, the blue guy and the orange guy. Um, the blue guy went away. So here we just need to go and make sure, you know, they each individually have a volume complete LSN. They each individually have a completion point uh, thing. And so you have to do that same ragged trim that I talked about earlier, but just for one of the nodes. And so, you know, that has implications on how we record LSNs, LSNs and transaction IDs and all the rest of it. They have to contain the, um, you know, the head node ID. Um, multi-master, um, multi-region multi-master is basically that same protocol. What we do is, um, we are doing that same um, replication thing that I talked about within regions, which is physical replication using redo logs. We ship it across regions. So that'll actually be pretty cool. It's actually a separable feature. We should be uh, launching that in Q1 sometime. And you know, that gives you cross-region physical replication in you know, something under 10 seconds, I would think, um, because you're mostly gated there by uh, the you know, physical distance of the wire. And that's, again, uh, I think a pretty a cool thing in the you know the case of doing that with multi-master what you're basically doing is I have a local partition you have a you know, I have a remote partition and I have to do the same kind of thing that um, I do in um, in uh, you know a shared nothing system about deciding where to send the rights and doing two-phase commit or doing a ledger right. um, so this is something that didn't make the cut for the keynote but I think is a big deal um, so parallel query processing for Aurora. So wouldn't it be, if we've got thousands of CPUs in the storage nodes, wouldn't it be cool if I could use those to do queries? And you know, I've got the data, right? Why the heck not? You know, Exadata does something like this. And so you know, why wouldn't I be pushed down and parallelize my query processing across these thousands of nodes using the storage fleet? And you know, moving the processing also reduces network latency, right? And traffic, which is, important if that's my key uh, concern. Um, the one, some of the challenges I face here is that uh, the data storage in, uh, we store in the storage node is not range partitioned because we want to avoid heat. So you need to do full table scans for this operation to work. Data may also be in flight, right? You have these read views and so forth about what data I'm allowed to see, what data is committed, et cetera. And you, know, you may not be allowed to see all of the data. And not all functions can be pushed down. Okay, so, you know. um, so what we basically do here is that we produce a plan, we create a context, we send it down. The storage node is responsible for streaming stable rows back up, as well as a raw stream of unprocessed rows so the head node can do its magic with undo processing to get the version of the data it's allowed to see. And then it you know, combines that to do a, uh, the final result. So that's basically an overall view. From a storage node perspective, we run 16 uh, parallel query processes on each node, each one associated with an individual query. And what it gets is, here's the list of pages I need you to scan, here's the read view and the projections, here's the expression that you need to go and run on that code, and we do two passes, one to do filter evaluation, one to do expression evaluation, and then we send the data back. So here's an example of a parallel hash join where we're basically pulling the data we run a bloom filter to you know, pick out the values that are interesting, push it back up. And um, you know, it's a fair bit faster. So, you know, it's, um, you know, so that's a you know, point query on the non-indexed column is, a, is a basically a scan. An aggregate query is a scan followed by an ag. Uh, and uh, you know, an ag plus two table join. You know. So you, know, you get advantages, right? And that's just because we're able to operate on the resources uh, one. So I can take questions for just about five minutes and I'd be happy to answer more questions outside the room after that. There are two mics over there on both the, at the two spots if you want to ask any questions. Sorry, I had to go run really fast through the end of this presentation. 
Hey, um, question here. When are you planning on having Aurora available in all regions? Uh, so right now, um, it is available in all of the regions that have three AZs except for Brazil. And the basically, as soon as we get available capacity in any uh, 3AZ region, you can expect Aurora to be there. People have, you know, we've gone and added uh, AZs to regions like uh, Frankfurt, for example, uh, in order to support things like us and, you know, EFS and things of that nature. But, you know, we have every desire to go to 3AZ pretty much anywhere that we have uh, a region. And when we do so, you can expect that Aurora will be there. How much of this will apply to Aurora Postgres? So everything that is uh, storage-based basically applies pretty quickly um, and immediately, things like the uh, volume cloning and so forth. Things that uh, require some database work um, will take a little bit longer, right? And uh, right now, I mean, Aurora Postgres really just went out a few weeks ago. I think you know, the way I tend to favor doing those things is, is that Usually, you want to let things quiesce, take customer load, deal with your tickets, and just sort of, and deal with like the things that customers really want that you know you maybe didn't quite get the fit and finish quite right before you start to add on. And you know, there is a bunch of stuff that we need to add in Aurora Postgres, you know, Lambda functions, you know, load from S3, all that kind of stuff. We'll get there, for sure. Is it is it possible to launch clones from CloudFormation? Um, so it's just an API call, uh, so I think you should be able to do so. I'm not really familiar with CloudFormation, you know, so, but as long as you can make a, uh, you know, an AWS API call, you should be fine. About this uh, multi-master thing, uh, we, we're dealing with the write-write confliction, so we don't have to dealing with the read and write confliction anymore. Or do we still need to? Um, I didn't quite understand the question. Could you repeat it? Yeah, basically we are saying if we have uh, multiple writer, right, if they get conflict with a certain page, we have to deal with that. But for the read part, we talk about that cache uh, coherence stuff, right? If you mm -hmm. read and you read the very old version, you have dealing with that, or do yeah. we don't need to do? Yeah, so I, I think the basic point uh, you're making is, is that if you have a multi-master configuration with reads and writes, you don't really need replic read replicas anymore. And I think that's fair, yeah, I uh, think. No, no, my, my point is uh, you have multiple masts, and one master is read some page in its memory, but it's a very old version. Do we yeah. need to handle that? Okay, uh, that's uh, correct. So we have to deal with that, right? And uh, so, you know, there's heartbeating going on all the time. There's fuzz about well, how old, what uh, read view you're allowed to see, and um, all of those sorts of things. So, yes, it definitely has to present the uh, image of a single database, which uh, really has to do with the same sort of Lamport clock mechanisms, the same sort of, um, uh, you know, time based. Uh, uh, notions of how up to date you can afford to be as anybody else. You know, you have to have an understanding of what data you read last or wrote last in your individual request to decide what is readable in your next request. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of that kind of work, of course. Yeah, thank you. Hey, I uh, might have missed this update, but is there uh, any updates on 5.7 support? Yeah, it should be out uh, within the next month. Thanks. Any chance that at some point in the future we might get to have a Postgres re-replica from a MySQL variant master? Oh, wow. Uh, I have not received that request before. Uh, Take my money. Yeah, let me, uh, I'll uh, think about that. Maybe I'll give, you can show up afterwards and uh, get a card and you can you know, send me an email with uh, some, the use case in some detail. Um. With the serverless, will it bring just increase the size of the Aurora instance, or will it actually spawn multiple master masters or whatever you need? So right now, we uh, grow and shrink. We are not in the, an initial release contemplating doing read replicas or multi-master 
or any of those sorts of things. Um, my sense is, is that multi-master and read replicas and multi-AZ and all of those sorts of things are generally more applicable to always-on systems. I do think that if your intuition is, is that, hey, why doesn't, don't those guys want uh, things to scale up and scale down? I think that's a legit point. Um, I need a bit more experience with both of those features before I uh, attempt to combine them. Okay, I think that's everything. Uh, I'm just gonna unmic and then I'll be outside if anyone has any uh, other questions. All right, thank you guys. Thank <laughs> you.